Welcome to The Conversation. My name is Benjamin Dixon, host of The Benjamin Dixon Show, filling in. And I am pleased to be joined by David Kim. He is a progressive uh, congressional candidate for California's 34th District. He is an immigration attorney, community, community organizer, and neighborhood council board member. Uh, David, how are you today? Thank you so much for joining us. Hi, Benjamin. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be on here. Uh, the pleasure is ours. We are always excited to speak with progressive I, candidates. Um, you're running up against the incumbent Jimmy Gomez. Uh, this seems to be a very interesting time in electoral politics and politics in general, uh, where there's a clear divide between progressives and the establishment. I would like to know more about your race in general, but if you could kind of cast it in light of the divide that's happening in the Democratic Party between the establishment and progressive um, um, insurgents, so to speak. Yes, for sure, Benjamin. Um, so the incumbent, my opponent, is an established Democrat, a corporately funded one who has over $600,000 in big donors and corporate PAC money. 98.8% of his contributions are from big donors and and uh, corporate PACs. And so when we say corporate PACs, we're talking about police unions, private prisons, military industrial complex, pharmaceutical companies, healthcare companies, developers, um, and the list goes on. And it's, it's very sad to say because maybe this, this type of thing where we had uh, Democratic officials even in our district representing us, maybe if 10 years ago, then it would have been okay. But right now, the times are urgent. People mm -hmm. need desperate help. People are suffering right now. And so the people don't want lip service anymore. And that's what our establishment Democratic officials have done. They just continue to do lip service. They preach Medicare for all, but then they take money from pharmaceutical companies and healthcare companies. They preach free education for all, like my opponent, but then the, he takes money from student debt collectors. And so when when, when the times are tough, when our district is the 10th poorest congressional district in the nation, like mm -hmm. our people are tired of just hearing these empty false promises. And so it's now we want change. We want people that are from our communities being elected to office. We don't want career politicians anymore. And my opponent is a career politician who's been in office since 2012. Yet, where are we now with our district? The 10th so, in the district in the country. Um, that is that is something. And I've had a chance to look over your platform. So you you have almost like the checklist of progressive issues, the Green New Deal, Medicare for all. You oppose the military industrial complex. You're looking to make cuts in, in the uh, defense sector um, all the way around progressive. Tell me what more than just the policies. How did you get to those policies? How did you become this progressive? Well, for me personally, Benjamin, after moving to Los Angeles in 2010, graduating from law school, you would expect my life to be super okay and easy, smooth sailing. But no, I spent eight to nine years having the two to three job daily grind and hustle, trying to make ends meet, working free as an attorney during the day and then driving for Lyft and Uber from 7 p.m. to 3 a.m. every morning and then having another job on top of that. And what, what really kind of hit me um, was in 2018 when, when campaigning for this young gentleman in our district for the same congressional seat against the same opponent, what opened the eyes for me was, oh my gosh, life isn't supposed to be this hard for anybody. And I'm supposed to be one of the fortunate few. And I'm thankful for that. But but if you look around me in my build apartment building, we have multiple families living in one bedroom apartments. We have per capita incomes being in the mid 20s in many parts of our district. But then the average rent for one bedroom apartment being over 1800 a month. And so with that being said, like 
we don't need politicians who are going to do little things here and there and say, hey, guys, look, I helped your community. No, we need elected officials who are able to take big, yeah. bold stances and policies that really bring change to our people right now, because that's the kind of change we need. So that's how we move towards those policies. So you're you come from experience. Um, a lot of Americans have that experience, right? Um, working multiple jobs just to make ends meet. But there seems to be a disconnect, not only obviously with Republicans and conservatives, that's that's obvious to anyone who's paying attention, but that disconnect exists inside of the Democratic Party. Uh, how are you going to challenge that being a, uh, you know, if you win, let's say you get that seat, um, what is your plan to actually combat that head on when you get to DC? Yeah, and then, and, and that's where we really need to look at what is giving us our power, what is empowering us. If I'm not connected or based into my constituency, then what am I doing there? What, why am I in DC? And so because our elected officials are legislating in DC aimlessly like balloons with their strings cut off in the air, they have nothing to solidify them, to give them ground. They don't have anything to fight for. And that's what, what will set apart the progressive wave of freshman elected officials that will be going into Congress because we're based in our constituencies. We know what we're fighting for. Right. We connect with the suffering. We're being held accountable by our constituency. And so one of the things that I do hope to accomplish, Benjamin, once I get into Congress is to pass a constituent political accountability bill where our elected officials are required to have a certain system of office hours with their constituents, monthly town halls in different boroughs of their neighborhood districts, being able to implement a system where they're able to hear all of their constituents' concerns and, and relate to them and connect with them. And so that's very important that we start um, even on that level of reform. One of the policies that I saw uh, that you were advocating for is universal basic income. Could you give us an idea of what that looks like from your perspective and how you would implement that? Yeah, well, UBI is definitely something that was new to a lot of people's ears when Andrew Yang brought it back onto the scene, but it's not not anything new. It was something that MLK Jr. was fighting for before he was assassinated. It was something that passed in the House in the early 70s, 1970 and 71. But right now, at a time where we're in a 35-plus year wage income stagnation and ever-increasing widening wealth gap, and where the norm is for people to have two to three jobs to make ends meet, this is not sustainable. We will end up like those Hollywood dystopian movies. And so now is the time that we give a floor to all of our people for them to stand on and for them to breathe. And so just realistically, practically speaking, in our district, with dis some parts of our neighborhoods having per capita incomes in the low 20s, giving that extra 12,000, and then during a pandemic like this, giving them the extra 2,000 a month would give them so much life and so much moving air to breathe. And so with that being said, it would be funded by VAT, it would be funded by different means. And our government and our media has brainwashed to think, Where's the money going to come from? Mm -hmm. But that's their job. They're the corporate media. They need the money to fund their endless wars. They need their money to fund their corporate interests. And so we as the people need to not get caught up in that. Um, real quick, in terms of the UBI, um, you, you mentioned the $12,000 a year, $1,000 a month, quite, quite analog, analogous to um, Andrew Yang's. Do you agree with his aspect of it where he would cut some of the safety nets in exchange for that UBI? Are you saying we're going to keep the safety nets and UBI on top of it? 
Yes, I don't believe that anybody should have the carpet taken out from under them. I know that my family, we grew up on a lot of safety net and assistance programs. And so it doesn't make sense to then pull that out from under them because then why implement it in the first place? For example, for those who um, I know that under the Freedom Dividend, which was the, the plan that he had advocated for last year, um, some people wouldn't be able to qualify for SSI. And if they don't, that SSI is what qualifies them to receive other benefits. And that's that's a big thing. That's very serious. And that's not something that we would want to advocate for at all. Absolutely. So ours is stacking up on top. Absolutely. Um, I want to ask you kind of a um, philosophical question in terms of what happens to politicians, progressive politicians, when they get to Washington, D.C. Uh, most of them go with the best of intentions and most of them go bright eyed and bushy tailed, so to speak. But then they become a part of the machine. Um, what is your plan to avoid that uh, with the uh, about 90 seconds that we have left? How do you avoid the trap that so many progressives fall into when they get to D.C.? Well, that's the thing. Um, a representative, the actual word represent is to manifest the will of the people. That's not what they're doing. So to keep me accountable, um, we need to have weekly office hours. We already started doing that. You can go to our website, davidkim2020.com, book a constituent hour with me. We need to have monthly town halls. Look at Representative Ocasio-Cortez. She passed with over 70% in her primaries because she is one of the few representatives that have monthly town halls in every different neighborhood uh, borough of her district. And that's how we keep our people accountable when we're co-governing with them intentionally. I like that, co-governing with the people to help you be held accountable. Uh, David Kim, he is the congressional uh, candidate, progressive candidate for California's 34th district. Thank you so much for joining us today. Welcome back. Joining me now is Rashad Ritchie. He is the former director of the Democratic Party of Georgia. He is a radio show host of the Rashad Ritchie Morning Show, editor at large for Rolling Out Magazine. You can hear him on 1380 WAOK, V103 in Atlanta, and CBS 46 in Atlanta. I lived in Atlanta for some time. Dr. Ritchie, how are you? It is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Man, it's an honor to be here with you, brother. Thank you for having me. My, the pleasure is ours. Uh, I wish we had better circumstances for us to speak, but uh, the things that are happening around the country right now really beg for uh, analysis and insight of your magnitude. Uh, what's happening in Kenosha, uh, Wisconsin, with the uh, attempted murder, in my opinion, of Jacob Blake. Uh, but and, and then also last night, we saw uh, the white supremacist militia take the lives of two protesters. Just kind of give me an overview of what you saw when you saw that video. Well, I saw an attempted murder just like you. Uh, let's look at what's really happening. You had a male who was walking away, walking away, understand this, walking away, and he was killed, okay? Police officers have four non-lethal ways they can handle an individual. They have their police stick, they have mace, they have a taser, and they also have their combat training. You mean to tell me that multiple officers cannot subdue a man who is simply walking away from them. If you're that kind of cop, you really need to um, reanalyze why you are working in that position if you can't subdue one man who's walking away from you without killing them, okay, mm -hmm. or without trying to kill them. In addition to that, look at the carelessness of life here, right? You had children inside of that vehicle where those gunshots were fired. That, to me, should tell the rest of the story. If you didn't care about his life, you definitely don't care about the lives that are connected to him. And so now he's fighting for his life. Uh, but I believe 100% that this was uh, unavoidable. Uh, the police did not have to uh, attempt to murder this guy and shoot him seven times in the back. 
But every time we see something like this, and I know you've come across this because you've been covering these stories for years, but there seems to always be the desire to explain away, to make justification. And in this case, they've done what they always do with every single person who's a victim of police violence, particularly black people, they dig up their past. Uh, how do you address that? And, and, and how do you feel about having to continuously address things that that police officer couldn't possibly have known in that moment? So let me first say something about my last statement. When I say unavoidable, I'm talking about the protests that are happening right now, the civil unrest. Yeah. Uh, let's talk about this uh, um, this default setting where people, they'll look at a case like this, where there's an unarmed individual, nonviolent, he's shot in the back, he's dead. Did he commit some type of minor crime? Perhaps. We don't even know that. His attorney says he was actually there resolving a domestic dispute, not creating one. So we don't know those facts. But Here's what we do know. The default setting is this. Let's now make the victim, let's now make that individual um, somebody to be feared. Well, that person is the one who has been shot, right? And it's always this, let's go back through the history and try to vilify the individual who is the victim. Now, granted, the police officers aren't aware of everything that's happening inside of the mind of this young man, but they never do. You mm -hmm. never know what's happening inside of the mind of anybody. So how can that be an excuse for you drawing your weapon and shooting somebody because you're not quite sure about what's in the mind of somebody else? If that's the case, brother, that mm. means that we have given license to every gun carrying cop in America to kill people based on what they think is in the parameters of their mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, the things in Kenosha um, increased, the, te the tenseness there uh, increased over the weekend and in overnight when a white supremacist militia group showed up to, quote unquote, assist the police officers there, resulting in three individuals getting shot, two of them being killed by a 17 year old young militia man. Um, who turns out, according to BuzzFeed, to be a Donald Trump supporter. Yet the president of the United States uh, made no comment about those murders, nor did he make any comment about the actions of his supporter. But he did declare that he was going to send in the National Guard and federal agents to suppress or to stamp out the protests. What are your thoughts on the president? You don't want to know my real thoughts on the president, <laughs> brother. Uh, but here's the thing. He's not going to come out strong against this murderer uh, because this murderer is allied to him in ideology and philosophy. So because of that one factor alone, he will not come out hard against this killer. Let's look at what, what has happened. You have a guy who's pictured on the front row at Trump rallies. You have someone um, who is an extreme militant, likely uh, connected to more militia groups. And I saw a video earlier today where he was walking side by side with law enforcement. Right. Here's my argument tonight. My argument is very simple. This young man, 17 years of age, has been radicalized by the president of the United States. Mm. Mm. Simple, plain as simple as that. You mentioned the fact that he was walking side by side by police officers. I saw that video as well. And in that video, the police officers not only walked side by side with the actual murderer, but they gave water out to the white militia groups and they even expressed gratitude, thanking them for being there. What does that say to you about the nature of police forces across this country, particularly in that city, that they would show gratitude to white supremacist militia groups? Well, it shows you the ideology in, inside of the cultural um, matrix of law enforcement. There exists this sentiment that this is an us and them battle. 
right? And the them, they are basically foreign to the us. Here's what's happening with police departments all over the country. They are being summarily judged because of incidents like this. If you're a good cop, great. I'm glad that we still have good cops in the world. But you are, if you are a good cop, and you say nothing about the bad policing that you see, mm. the constitutional violations, you're not as good as you think you are. When you mm. go to church on Sunday, you go to Bible study on Wednesday, you kiss your wife and kids or the other way around, think about who you serve. Because if you just serve an agenda that protects the systemic order of white supremacy, racism, bigotry in the United States, then you are protecting an evil enterprise and you have to check your soul for that. Mm. Mm, I appreciate that. I want to ask you something about you and, and your work as a political commentator. Uh, you've covered these stories for years, and it seems like these stories never change. It seems like it's the same thing, different day and a different hashtag. How do you how do you keep up with this? Because I found in my five years of doing this, covering even a, a friend of mine who was killed by police officers, it gets weary, especially when you have to debunk so many lies and so many different ways that they try to justify the murder and the dehumanization organization uh, of people, particularly black people. How do you how do you push through that? Man, with much difficulty. Here's how I look at my job. And and you should look at your job the same because you do the exact same thing. We are administers of truth. We administer truth on a daily basis. That is a calling. I believe that those who watch this program, those who understand what truth is and they're willing to stand in the truth and proclaim that truth, you have a much bigger calling than just what's around you, than just yourself. And I take that calling seriously. And so I endeavor to continue to do so. But it is getting so volatile to where now the truth is debatable. Facts are debatable. That was never reality in this country until recently. Mm, mm. I, I, one last question before we go, I, because you, you opened up a can, you opened up Pandora's box there. We are dealing in a post-truth, post-fact society. Where, where do we even begin? Or better yet, how do we fight back against a system that is as interested in lies or more interested in lies than it is the truth and it has the ability to spin everything into a half-truth and, and propaganda? How, how do we manage that? Here's the best advice I can give you. Never let it become normal. Never let it normalize. When you hear people say, well, why are you paying attention to that? Why are you responding to that? Why are you posting about that? Oh, you know, that's just how Trump is. Oh, you know, that's just politics. Never listen to them. Always act as if, respond as if, behave as if this is abnormal. Show your outrage. Show your pain when there's extreme um manipulation when there are lies continue to fight it and never let it become normal to you and if it never becomes normal to you it'll never be normal for your children it'll never be normal for your grandchildren and it will normal in this country you know i'm enjoying i said that was the last question but if you forgive me let me get one more in there because i'm enjoying the conversation because you, you and i have Same a here, brother. similar tone and tenor and pattern and everything else um you know you you come from the black church experience if i'm not mistaken correct yeah absolutely talk just really quickly we have about two minutes but but there seems to be a, a a distinct difference between a person of faith like yourself and myself who we use our faith for liberation to fight on behalf of marginalized people across this country but but we seem to be in league or at least brethren with folks who used to lynch us on saturday night and go to church on sunday morning we only got like a minute left but what are your thoughts on the role of faith your faith particularly in this fight for freedom justice and liberation my faith informs me, my politics, 
that is an expression of my faith. What we're seeing a lot, especially in Christian evangelical circles, they have allowed their politics to inform their faith. My mm. faith informs my politics. Um, I actually teach a course at the university I teach at uh, called Dr. King and the church as a social change agent. In that class, I have white students, black students, brown students. I have everybody there. And we look at how church and King's utilization of the church transformed the social narrative. Remember this about policy, because that is what King transformed, and that's what we should transform. Policy is a social contract between the community and the government. Good policy is always spiritual in nature. So all of my brothers and sisters, regardless of their faith background, if you're fighting for good policy, you're on the right side of the spirit. Absolutely appreciate that. Dr. Rashad Ritchie, he's a former director of the Democratic Party of Georgia. He's a uh, radio show talk host, the Rashad Ritchie Morning Show, Rolling Out Magazine, editor at large. He's all over the place and he's with us on the conversation today. Thank you so much for your time, sir. Thank you.